Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 12. For it is impossible, in the case of those who've once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name and in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's be seated as we pray. Father, I am, I, my heart's just so full right now. Uh, Michael and Joseph and Lydia, all different stories, different paths, but the same God working in their heart and the same testimony at its core. My heart's full. I think many of us feel that way. And we have your word before us, and we know we need your word, and this word is, as we've read it, uh, a heavy word. But I pray that your Holy Spirit would be active in our midst. We, we together right now open our hearts. We want to hear from you. We want you speaking into our hearts. We want your correction. We want your encouragement. We need you. And so... Uh, It's with that posture that we come into this time around your word. I need that. We all need that. So work in our midst, we're asking. In Christ's name, amen. Sally has a serious drinking problem, but she doesn't see it. Her family's tried to help her see it, sometimes indirectly, sometimes fairly directly. But she thinks they're making too big of a deal of it. She just has a drink to relax. She has good control over when and how she does it. It doesn't really affect her. What do you do for Sally? How do you help her? How do you help her to see what she can't see? How do you help her see the danger of the path she's on? Perhaps you bring to her the examples of Uncle Billy and Grandpa Joe. Look at what alcohol did to Uncle Billy. He didn't think it was a problem either. But the little vice grew into a vicious monster. It pushed away from him everyone he loved. So, when cirrhosis of the liver took his life at 53, he died alone. His family estranged from him. Pain and heartache in his wake. 
Now, Sally isn't Uncle Billy, but perhaps his life will jolt her out of her complacency about alcohol. But you also want to bring to her the example of Grandpa Joe, who had his own addiction, cigarettes. He wasn't exactly a chain smoker, but he also used cigarettes to relax. But he realized that he wanted to see his grandkids grow up. He wanted to have the energy to be able to play with them and enjoy them. So he cut the vice from his life, even if it would have been easy for him to just excuse himself in continuing his smoking. Sally, you tell her, we could all see Grandpa Joe made the right choice. We were all glad for him. Be like him. This morning, I would like to ask us all to consider whether you and I are Sally. If, like Sally, we have a serious problem, not a drinking problem, but a spiritual problem. That is, we might be dull of hearing, sluggish of hearing, We might not actually love God's Word and want to know it, understand it, and live it. We may be content to occasionally glance off the surface of the Bible, maybe read a Christian book or repeat a Christian cliche here and there, but we aren't willing to really plumb the depths of God's Word. And if that's true for us, what we need to see this morning is that we are in grave danger. Just like Sally. And just like Sally, we may be unwilling to admit that we have a problem. So we must listen to this sermon open to the idea that we are Sally. Now I know all of us aren't. In fact, as I've been praying and wrestling through this passage, I think of the great work God is doing in our church where many people have that hunger for God's Word and are pressing each other to grow. So I know many of us aren't but even for those who are not like Sally. I think we will better hear this sermon if we listen open to the possibility that we are. So that's going to be the posture I ask us all to listen to this. Is God giving me a corrective this morning? Because I think that God wants to jolt many of us out of our spiritual sluggishness. And he does so by bringing up two examples for us. The first is kind of an Uncle Billy example, a warning example, and it's in verses 4 through 8. The second is more of a Grandpa Joe example, a follow their example example. It's in verses 11 and 12. So let's open our hearts. May God use these examples to pull us off of a dangerous road. May God use this passage to warn us from ever going down that dangerous road. Let's listen first to the example that warns, the one I think designed to jar us. 
verses 4 through 8. Listen as I read it again. For it is impossible in the case of those who've once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For a lamb that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it was cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now, this passage comes on the heels of 5.11 to 6.3, which we looked at last week. If you remember, the author of Hebrews is beginning a lengthy and important, he's about to begin a lengthy and important discussion of Melchizedek, but he interrupts himself. He knows the people he's writing to have no appetite for that kind of serious study of the Bible. So in 5.11-6.3, he kind of diagnoses their problem. They're suffering from what we've called spiritual anemia because they're on a diet of milk instead of a diet of meat. They're dull of hearing instead of being experts in the word of righteousness. They're spiritually weak, fatigued, they are malnourished. And what they need is rich, Christ-exalting study of Scripture that shows the implications of God's Word for the way they live their lives. But they have no stomach for that kind of thing. If Sally has a drinking problem, they have an appetite problem. They have little appetite for God's Word, at least the study of it that goes into any depth. So in verse 3, the author stated his resolve. He is going to go on to those deeper things. We are going to offer you meat, he's saying. But before he goes on to offer them those other things, he gives them this Uncle Billy example. Now, I want us to see from this description uh, of the people who are being used as an example, I want us to see two important traits of those people. I think they're pretty obvious, but I just want to state them because I think they're important to keep in mind. The first is these people have had a genuine Christian experience. The second is they have fallen away. Those are the, the two traits I want us to see. So let's look first at their genuine Christian experience. I'm going to pick up in the middle of verse 4, and I'm going to go phrase by phrase, just so we can see what he's describing these people have encountered. So it says, they have once been enlightened. The word enlightened simply means given light. It can be used literally or figuratively. So he's saying they've had a light bulb moment, a moment in which it's all made sense. The next phrase, it says, they've tasted of the heavenly gift. Now, three of the descriptions we'll look at use the word tasted. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've tasted the goodness of God's word. They've tasted the powers of the age to come. Now, the same word for tasted is used in chapter 2, verse 9, to describe Jesus' experience with death. So the word conveys a full experience of something, not just a nibble around the edges. 
to have tasted the heavenly gifts means that they have enjoyed the good things that come only from God. It also says they've shared in the Holy Spirit. Shared's a strong word. It can be used for business partners or even for more visceral bonds. I'm talking about the Greek word behind shared. It's used in chapter 3, verse 1, and in chapter 3, verse 14, to refer to Christians who belong to Christ, who shared in Christ. So these people have had experience of a strong bond with the Holy Spirit. It also says they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. They've had a genuine experience with how good the Bible is. They've read it. They've heard it preached. They've embraced at a certain level the good news of Christ. These are people who at one time were convinced of the Bible and the gospel message they're in and that that message was good. They've also tasted the goodness of the powers of the age to come. God's power, which will be fully seen in the age to come, does break into our age in various ways, including miracles, signs, transformed lives. And we know from chapter 2, verse 4, that the people who lived in that day, when God was giving particular authentication of his gospel message, they had experienced certain vivid signs and wonders. They had experienced the goodness of God's eternal power in the here and now. I know that's a long list. I wanted to work through those phrases. Because taken all together, it's clear that these people have had a genuine Christian experience. The Scriptures go point by point and list these things to make sure that we understand that these people are people who who shared the same experiences we do. Because it would be easy to dismiss them when we learn about them falling away and it's impossible for them to repent and all that. It's easy for us to dismiss them and say, oh, that's not me, that's not me. So he wants us to know, look, I'm going to go in detail to show over and over again, these people were just like us. They experienced what we experienced So, the first general trait, they had had genuine Christian experiences. But, the second one is they had fallen away. And you see that at the beginning of verse 6. And then have fallen away. Now, the word translated fallen away has a fairly broad scope of meaning. It could refer to someone who has fallen into some sort of serious transgression. Or it could refer to someone who has outright rejected the faith. But either way, it's not good. There are people who've had genuine Christian experiences who have fallen away, either by embracing some dark sin or by outright rejecting the faith. So that's, that's how this example, that's describing them. And look at the results. The results of either kind of falling away is devastating. And our passage draws out two aspects of of what it's like to fall away of their fate. The first thing is, it is irreversible. The outcome for them is irreversible. That's how it begins. For it is impossible, verse 4 says, and then it resolves that at the end of 6, to restore them again to repentance. There is no turning. 
the consequences are irreversible. They cannot be restored to repentance. This is kind of the the haunting part. To have taken an action that sends you down a course that ultimately can't be repentant of. That's where this example jars us. It sobers us. Perhaps when you read this, it scares us. And we're told why the consequences are irreversible, because they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. I should just say, it's obvious that they're, the author's not saying that Jesus is actually dying on the cross again as a result of their sin, because he makes clear later in Hebrews 9 that Jesus' death was once and for all. It's final. So what does he mean? He's saying that the events that surrounded Jesus' death, even from a human standpoint, the events that led to his death, are being repeated in their own hearts. So the betrayal, you remember Judas' betrayal? Follower of him, experiencing all the experience, and then he betrays him? Or or, or you think of the, the open contempt, the Jewish leaders, the Romans who are mocking him, spitting at him, beating him. These same things are being repeated in the hearts of those who are fallen away. The sins at the crucifixion are being repeated over and over again by them. Those who taste the goodness of Christ and then hold Him in contempt are treating Jesus the same way the crucifiers did. And because of this, the Bible says, they are beyond repentance. Their consequence is irreversible. I said there's two aspects of their faith. Irreversible was one. The other is the consequences are horrible. That's what verses 7 to 8 are describing. You see, there's a a a field that's intended to produce good fruit. And if it does, it experiences God's blessing. But that field that produces thorns and thistles, we're told, will experience the curses of God. Indeed, it says the curses are near. Soon it will be burned. The fate of these people is horrible, horrible, and irreversible. So that's the example that we're given at the outset. They've experienced genuine Christianity. They've fallen away either by some sort of serious transgression or by outright outright rejection of the faith. And they have, as a result, received horrible and irreversible consequences. Do any of you love grammar? Have you ever noticed how people mock and look down on people who love grammar until they need something proofread? And then all of a sudden, you're their best friend? Well, I want to draw our attention to an important aspect of our passage's grammar. Because there's a shift that we need to notice, a shift in pronouns. So in 5.11 to 6.3, the pronouns are you and us. You, 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 us, 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 right? 
But then, in 6, 4 through 8, there's no more you, us. Now it's those, they, them. But then, after talking about them, 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 6, 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. And from that point on, it's you and your again. Now, why is this grammatical observation important? It's important because in giving this example in 6, 4 to 8, he's not telling Sally that she is Uncle Billy. He's telling these people whose faith is on shaky ground to take heed, but he's not saying this is them. He's using the example to jar them. He's trying to give them sobering examples of people who have fallen away as a warning to them, but he is not saying it is them. And I just want to stop and think about some of the people in the New Testament who are examples of this, who fit the description here. I think of from Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, two early converts to the church. And at that time, the Christians were uh, looking out for those in need. And what they would do is if there was a need in the church, they would, people would sell property, sell off property, sell off some of their assets and, and bring the money and lay it before the apostles' feet so the apostles could distribute to it so that within the church, no one was suffering and no one was in want. It was a beautiful example. And Ananias and Sapphira go, oh, that's what all the Christians are doing. We should do that too. But let's sell it for this much money, but only claim we've sold it for this much money, and then we can come and say we're giving all the money to the apostles' feet when really we're benefiting ourselves from it. Now, it wouldn't have been wrong for them to only give a portion of the money to uh, the cause, but it's what they're doing is they're, they're deceiving. It says they're deceiving the Holy Spirit. They're trying to lie to the Holy Spirit to make themselves look like these great righteous giants. And you know what God does? Because of the serious transgression. He strikes both of them dead. Talk about going down a path that you can't repent from. I think they fit the description. Or I think of uh, in 1 Timothy, we're introduced to Hymenaeus and Alexander. These are two people who belong to the church. Seems like they were full-fledged members of the church. And yet... They start to get fixated on these little details of the law and they kind of start to create their own little theology that that goes against the gospel message that that Paul and the apostles had announced. And yet, in their own little internal dialogue, they kind of get so caught up and they start to get some followers. They actually think they're doing something and they become rigid in it. And as a result, it says, they have made shipwreck of their faith having been handed over to Satan. There are other examples, but I think the most obvious I've already referenced, which is Judas Iscariot. Some of these people who he's writing to might have even known Judas Iscariot. Certainly they knew of him. He was a contemporary. A man who had walked with Jesus as one of his inner twelve disciples. Who even was a treasurer of the twelve. Who, when the disciples were sent out two by two, was working signs in the Holy Spirit's power. Who tasted all the goodness of what 
God had offered. He, he was there when Jesus had divided the fish and the bread and thousands have eat, had eaten. All of that. And yet, he fell away. He betrayed the Son of God. And though he had deep regret after it, the Scripture tell, does does not describe in any way him ever actually repenting and turning to Christ. Remorse, yes, but turning to the grace of Christ like Peter did after his denial, no. His heart's hardened. He doesn't repent. These should be sobering examples to us. Why, why are we talking about these people? Why are we thinking about their example? It's because we think that our spiritual anemia is no big deal. Ah, my lackadaisical approach to God, that's fine. You know you're a milk-only Christian, but you don't see any harm in it. And Sally doesn't think she has an alcohol problem. But look at what can happen. Without robust spiritual health, we're susceptible to allowing little sins to creep in to our heart. Sins that left unchecked by the Word of God, which it's designed to do, sins left unchecked grow and grow. Because we're not in the Word of God, in community, going deeper. They're not being exposed. And soon, boom. You're dabbling in an affair. You're lying to the Holy Spirit. You're embittered against God and denying the very work of Christ. We can think of people who have done that. We can think of those examples. Nobody who's gone down those paths set out to do so. And some who go down those paths become so hardened, they're beyond repentance. It is a big deal. The danger we're talking about is real, it's not hypothetical. This is not a thought experiment. Talking about life and death, that's all. It's only a lifetime of brokenness at stake. Only eternity hangs in the balance. Our spiritual sloth is no trifling matter. this point, I want to pause and clarify two important things. One relates to a theological point. This passage is one that's often used as a proof text by those who say or claim that Christians can lose their salvation. But the point of our passage is to warn those with an example, is to warn us with an example of those who have fallen away not to dissect theologically what was going on in their falling away. 
He's holding out an example. He's not trying to analyze everything below the surface that's going on. Other passages of Scripture do that for us. They tell us the mechanics. And, and one thing other passages of the Bible make very clear is that a Christian cannot lose his salvation. A few weeks ago, I went through some of the passages that made that clear. But of course, other passages in the Bible also make clear that someone can appear to be a Christian for a season of time, only to eventually fall away and so prove that they were never Christians to begin with. So the warning still stands, even though one's salvation cannot be lost. So just kind of clarifying that. This passage isn't teaching that Christians can lose their salvation, even though that means it doesn't take out the teeth of the warning. The second point I want to clarify kind of stems from last week's sermon and this week's sermon. And I want, I want to clarify what I mean when I'm talking about kind of a, a rigorous study of the Bible as the solution to our spiritual anemia, right? The good diet we need. When I was in university, uh, the course of study I was in had me uh, studying under a professor at the Divinity School, Dr. Schweiker. He was a premier academic, and he devoted his life to the study of the Bible. He knew the Bible inside and out, but he wasn't even a Christian. So we need to do much more than fill up our brain with a bunch of information that's in the Bible. That, that's not what I'm talking about. Just if, if you just are an academic and like studying all the stuff in the Bible and can spout off a bunch of stuff, Hymenaeus and Alexander could do some of that, right? What are we to do? What are we talking about? Hebrews gives us the example. It repeatedly shows us what we mean by this kind of rigorous study of the Bible because it, as it digs into the riches of the Word of God, it's always doing two things. It's always exalting Christ and pointing us to the throne of grace and showing us who he's like and his mercy and his tenderness and his forgiveness and the goodness of the gospel. It's exalting Christ as it digs into God's word. And there's another side to that same coin. And it can, it's consistently warning us and telling us, this is how God wants you to live your life. Be warned, you're in a dangerous path if you're doing this. Make sure you're living this way. So it's digging into God's word in a way that shows its relevance for our lives. That's what Hebrews is doing throughout. Exalting Christ and showing the implications of God's Word for how we live our lives. It's that kind of deep, rich study that we're talking about. So when I'm talking about that kind of study Bible, it includes reading and studying the whole Bible, really grappling with it and seeking to understand it. But it also includes doing it in a way that allows it to reveal our hearts, to correct us, to warn us. It means doing it in a way that draws us closer and closer to Jesus and His gospel. It's studying the Bible in a way that allows it to transform us. That's what we need to be doing. And the dangers of not doing it are simply too high. We can make shipwreck of our faith. Many have. And like the greedy pirate walking to his doom, may their skeletons be a warning to us.
having laid such a stern and sobering warning, the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, offers us a word of comfort. Now remember, he's just told us, if you, like Sally, think your spiritual lethargy is no big deal, you should be warned. Consider the many examples of those who've fallen away. But now he comes around and offers a word of assurance, and he says, you are not Uncle Billy. Look at verses 9 and 10. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. He comforts them. And the basis of his comfort for them is grounded in the fruit of God's work seen in their lives. That's important to see. God had changed them. And he was producing the fruit of his spirit in them. They have a genuine love for his name that drives them to do good works of service to others. So yes, they're immature. Yes, they're lethargic in their faith. But they do genuinely love Yahweh and Christ. And that love is proven by their actions. These Christians believed, as the previous passage described it, the elementary doctrines of Christ. And they loved God enough that it was affecting the way they lived their lives. Now, they were far from perfect, as am I, as are you. But a just God doesn't harden the hearts of people who believe the gospel and genuinely love him. For those who don't hold Christ in contempt, for those who show evidence of God's work in our lives, the example of 6, 4 to 8 is not you. It should sober us, but it's not us. The passage then ends with a positive example. Listen to verses 11 and 12. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience patience inherit the promises. He wants us to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Remember Grandpa Joe? Remember those who waited for the fulfillment of God's promises, who, who were patient believing with hope that God would grant them their inheritance. Yes, they stumbled at times. Yes, the world got the better of them at times. And yes, they experienced some excruciating seasons. But they trusted God and were patient, knowing that in due season they would reap a harvest. They had full assurance of hope. They knew God. They knew His character. They knew He would follow through. How do they know this about God? 
They knew it because they'd studied the Scriptures that tell the story of how God has acted in this world. They had read how God had continually kept His promises. And some of them had seen how Christ had come on the scene and fulfilled the very things that God had promised in the Old Testament. God's plan had come to completion. They were people of the book. And because they were people of the book, it changed them. People of the book are marked by love, hope, faith, and forbearance. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ. I guess that many of you who are here in that camp are here because you know someone who's a person of the book. And you've noticed that there's something different about their life. You've noticed that they have faith. That they have hope. A full assurance of hope. They have a forbearance. That they have a love. Well, if that's you, I invite you to keep coming to our church. We're glad you're here. And I hope as you get to know us, you'll find more and more people like that. Now, there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians and are quite unpleasant people. But people who really are people of the book, who take God's word seriously are inevitably transformed people. Not perfect people, mind you, but transformed. Transformed. So stick around. Watch us. We invite you in. People of the book are people of love, hope, faith, and forbearance. But did you catch the alternative there in verses 11 and 12? On the one hand, you can, as verse 11 states, have full assurance of hope to the end. You can, as verse 12 says, be an imitator of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. That's on the one hand. But what's the alternative? It's there in the beginning of verse 12. To be sluggish. Sluggish. It's the exact same word in Greek that we saw back in chapter 5, 11, where it says dull, dull of hearing. You see, he ends where he began. You're dull of hearing. I don't want you to be sluggish. Sluggish of hearing. We need to change our diet. We are spiritually anemic. We're spiritually anemic, at least many of us are. And we aren't allowing God's Word, the sword of the Spirit, to do its work in us. We aren't eating meat. It's time to change our diet. The stakes are too high if we don't. But if we do, if we do, if we press into God's Word in a way that pulls us closer to Christ and His Gospel, in a way that shapes and transforms who we are. If we do that, our faith will grow strong and we will be people who have full assurance of hope. 
We'll be a people who forbear, a people who love, a people whose lives demonstrate this faith and hope. I look in this room this morning, and as I was preparing this sermon, I was praising, praying, God, may every single person sitting in this room this morning be that kind of person. And conversely, I was praying that none sitting in this room would fall away. Let's pray. Father, a passage like this stirs up so many things. Maybe there's some in this room who have a loved one who for a time was walking with Christ, but who isn't now, and they're wondering in their head, is is their loved one beyond repentance? Maybe some others in this room have been cut to the quick and felt that this passage was for them, meant to jolt them out of their lethargy. Maybe some with a sensitive conscience are, are worried about whether their faith is strong enough or real enough or whether they're good enough. Maybe some are really encouraged because they've seen how a rich diet of your word does shape and transform. And you're a powerful God and your word is powerful. And it changes us. God, I'm aware as a pastor preaching this passage that I can't address every heart concern that this passage raises raises. But I pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to people. And most of all, Father, we pray that our whole church, everyone in here, would be someone who really does dig deep into your word in that transforming sort of way so we can be growing more and more like Christ. I pray that none here would take lightly their spiritual anemia. May we hear the warning this morning. But at the end of the day, how we close this service is what we want to remember, that you are a faithful God. There's pardon for sin and a peace that endures. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Amen.